could see just hearing from Paul uh, just for a couple minutes how um, excited and encouraged he is. Um, and I think I've shared this with you before, but uh, I hope you understand that because of, of your prayers and your support, um, start, you know, just started a week ago, that this man now is going to go back into interior Ghana and he's going to plant a church, God willing. And he's going to do it because a, a little church in Northern Virginia called Hamilton Baptist Church says we want to come alongside this brother. And so just recognize that this is part of your legacy. This is part of your, your ministry as a church. It's just not here, though it must be here. But it is across the sea and to places that uh, we, we don't even know about. And yet Christ is going to be proclaimed and the church is going to be built because of your willingness to be part of that. And so I, I'm so thankful to be a church that's serious about this work. I'm thankful that uh, I believe I'll be returning in April. I just want to let you know, another trip to Ghana. We're going to be going twice a year, maybe more, three times a year. And so opportunities will abound. And uh, we're looking forward to see what God does through that ministry. In fact, I feel like we should pray for Paul even now. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for our brother Paul and his uh, uh, precious wife, Anna. And we thank you, Father, that uh, he can now go into interior Ghana because of your people here. And uh, undoubtedly, uh, they have worshiped well this morning. We pray, Father, that your hand would be upon him and that you would guide him and you open doors that he might proclaim that Jesus Christ saves sinners through his death and his resurrection. The church may be built and that your renown may go forth even to the uttermost parts of this earth. We pray for him. We pray for all those pastors that uh, Mark was able to come alongside and help to train. Father, let your ministry abound in that place. Let uh, the ministry of Equipped to Serve in this pastoral training bear great fruit for your fame and for the eternal gain of those that will reach. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I do now invite you to turn to your Bibles in Luke chapter 8. Uh, you'll find that on page 865 in the Pew Bible. We're going to uh, be continuing really kind of part two of what we considered last week, uh, being careful how you hear. We'll begin in verse 16, Luke chapter 8 and verse 16, as we consider the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 8 and verse 16, please hear now the word of God. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Our Father, we're thankful now for the word of our Lord that we can set our hearts upon. We're thankful, Father, for uh, this exhortation, this encouragement, this uh, warning, I think, that we might consider the magnitude about what we are about to engage in, that is hearing your word, and that great gain can be had today as well as great loss. 
And so help us to understand that. Help us to seek after you through your word that you have given us, that we might know you more and love you more faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if it's evident to you, but I enjoy preaching. Uh, I'm very thankful that that I get to do this, that uh, I get to, many people don't get to do what they love to do as far as a vocation, and uh, God has richly blessed me in being able to do that. I also find, though I find great delight in preaching, I find preaching to be a very heavy responsibility. And I've learned that not only through my personal experience in preaching and in the ministry now for 18 years, but through Scripture. In fact, I find it interesting that, that God, from the very beginning of His Bible to the very end, is always emphasizing that He is going to communicate His truth by calling forth a man to proclaim it to others. There is always, from the very beginning, this proclamation, even to the very end, of Scripture. God is always going to have people proclaiming His Word. And, and therefore, there are a number of warnings in Scripture to do, to do so faithfully. That Jesus actually tells us that one day there's going to come these peddlers of God's Word and they're, they're going to alter it and change it and delete some and add some more in order to appease the people and tickle their ears and accumulate great wealth for themselves. In fact, Jesus would say to the teachers of His day, if anyone causes one of my little ones to stumble by, by your preaching or your, by your teaching, you lead someone into sin, you lead them into stray. It would be better for that man to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. His brother James would write, Not every one of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, for you know those who teach will be judged with a stricter standard. And so that's, that's weighty on me. Uh, I, I think it's weighty on a lot of pastors. I think it's why most pastors take Friday off and... And work on, on Saturdays. His Saturdays, I, at least I can speak from my own experience, I begin to feel the weight of what I have to do on Sunday. And, and I just want to be alone, to be perfectly honest. I, I don't have a lot of meetings on Saturdays. I draw my blinds and hunker down. And I, I'm not writing the sermon that's been written weeks before. But I'm certainly praying and searching my own heart and trying to memorize Scripture and pleading with God. And you, you begin to feel you begin to feel the weight of what God has placed on you to say. And, and what's going to happen uh, on Sunday. Because this Bible tells us as a result of your preaching, some people are going to hear the word and their hearts are going to be softened to the Lord and they're going to be drawn closer to Him. And, and they're going to be um, receive truth and they're going to be re- receive repentance as a gift of grace and they're going to be strengthened and their hearts are going to be won by Jesus and they're going to have greater victory over sin and, and greater fe- freedom and purpose. And yet it also tells us at the same time, in the same message, that there'll be other people who have a li- maybe a little bit of attraction to Jesus, and that attraction to Him will grow dimmer and smaller. And see, Jesus knew this. You see, He says in verse 18, Take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Take care then how you hear is His warning, is His instruction for us. Because His truth is going to sift its hearers. 
And so you may think you're just coming to church. Right? This is what you do on Sunday mornings. You just come. And I think something far more profound happens every Sunday morning. When someone proclaims God's word, that God will either give you more or he will take away. And it all depends, it seems to me, on how you hear him. And so I, I, I feel that way. I, I really do. In fact, sometimes, it's probably why I go home and I just crash on Sunday mornings. I just, I, I, I just shut down for two hours in a prone position, right? I mean, I am like sleeping like a bear after Sunday. In fact, I, I, I probably never, I don't think I told a leg of this, but here we go. Um, I, <laughs> I'll tell you, maybe every third or fourth Sunday, uh, I, I'm done preaching, and I, I said, I don't, I don't want to preach anymore. I'm, you know, I, I say, it's just too hard. And then by Tuesday, I'm studying the Word, and I'm so excited, and I can't wait to get up here and, and, and proclaim it to you. But I, I feel that way because of what the Lord has said, and, and of course, because of what I experienced. But Luke 8 is not about the way to preaching, is it? It's about the weight of listening to preaching. It's about the weight of hearing God's word and listening to, to his word taught in Sunday school and even in your own personal d- devotional time. You see, I think Jesus wants to put the weight on you today, not on me. As he gives a warning to its hearers, take care then how you hear. I me- mentioned that this is a continuation of last week. You remember that Jesus says, I, I speak in parables to reveal truth to those whose hearts are softened to me and to conceal truth from those whose hearts are closed to me. And that when I, when I proclaim the truth, uh, for some, um, they're going to get more and for others, it's going to be taken away. And he says, therefore, you need to listen carefully. In fact, there's four ways to listen. Remember, he says one way to listen is going to bear great fruit. And there's three ways to listen to preaching that that won't lead to any fruitfulness. And then, then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. He's, you need to hear well. And, and today is just a continuation of that, that we need to be careful how we listen. And one of the reasons we do is because the word illumines the darkness. The word illumines the darkness. You see that in verse 16? No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And you, you see, he's changed his metaphor here. He was talking about soil and, and seed, and now he's talking about lamps and light. And I think the light here is a reference to the Word of God. I, I think it's a reference to Jesus' teaching, his revelation, his, his gospel. And the question is, once you have the Word of God, what is it that you do with it? And Jesus is saying, you're supposed to shine it. When you've been impacted by God's Word, when you've been transformed by His Word, you're supposed to, to, to let that shine, to illuminate the darkness. In fact, he explains here, doesn't he? It's folly to hide it. It's just foolishness. Right? You don't, I don't, sometimes we have power outages, right? And, and we walk around and we look for flashlights or maybe candles or, or lamps. And, and it was just total darkness and we're looking for these little lights. And when you get them, what do you do with them? You, you don't slide them under the bed, right? You don't light a candle and put it under a bowl. It's just foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. It's the exact opposite purpose. It would be like making dinner and just, before you're taking a bite, just throwing it away or buying a car and locking it in a garage or maybe buying an exercise bike and never riding it. Right? It's just totally pointless. It's against the exact reason for it. And so Jesus tells us here that His, His Word is given to us to change us in order that we might share it, that we might shine it, that we might not hide it. I'll tell you, it's every bit as stupid to light a lamp and put it under a bowl than it is to receive God's Word and not do what it says. Right. Not share it. 
In fact, I think this light is needed today as much as it ever has been. I, I don't know if you would draw the same conclusion, but the world seems to be a dark place to me. It seems to be growing ever so more. I think there's a reason for all this craziness that's taking place, this new uh, moral order, the redefinition of marriage or the selling of baby parts or the greed rampant and um, turning back upon uh, people in great need as they flee war-torn areas. And and it just seems to be um, there's a reason for all this darkness. And I think it's because the world doesn't know God, doesn't know its maker, doesn't know that it is made by someone and is made by him in order to love him and when we don't love him we don't follow him things go awry and everything gets messed up and the world becomes very dark and jesus came into this world didn't he to reveal this to us he came as this this brilliant torch into this dark world to shine this light and then he comes up to you and you're like a little candle and he reaches down and he lights your candle he says now take that light with you in your school and in the workplace and in your family and in your neighborhood This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That's what the Lord is calling for us to do. He wants to shine through you. He wants where there's lies for you to bring truth and where there's fear for you to bring hope and where there's anxiety for you to bring peace and confusion for you to bring clarity and where there's sin for you to bring conviction and grace that you and I must boldly proclaim both by word and deed, what it is we have been have received. The gospel has not been given to you, Christian, so that you can simply admire it or even profess it. It has been given to you so that you might practice it and proclaim it. It is not meant to merely reside in your intellect or even in your heart, but it is to be seen in your lives and heard on your tongues. The Lord Jesus says, what I tell you in darkness, you speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, you proclaim upon the housetops. So my question for you, my friends, my brothers and sisters this morning is, how are you doing? Are you shining? Are you shining into the darkness? Are you shining in your work, in your school, in your home, neighbors? You talk about Jesus. Not to the point where you annoy people and they run away from you when they see you. But are, are, you, are you living? I mean, you do, are you different at work? Are you the one filled with peace when everybody's freaking out? Are you the one who serves? Are you the one who loves others? Are you one that at school who finds the, the awkward kid and, and, and the kid that no one likes, the kid that's the object of everybody's scorn, and you go and sit by them and love them? Are you any different than this dark world? And then when we are, we have opportunities, don't we? He gives us to share Jesus or to pray for people or to serve them. You know, in America, we're told to keep our religion private, aren't we? But Jesus says, no, that's not why I've saved you. I've done this, saved you for the exact opposite reason. I've lit your candle. I want to give light to this dark- darkness, right? Are you going to hide it under a bushel? No, there it is. No. How are you doing? I wonder if there's anybody you're specifically hiding your light from. Someone you're not shining before. Who, who have you not spoken to Jesus about? Who are you not serving? I see the word is given to illuminate the darkness. But secondly, Jesus says the word will expose your secrets. Note verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to the light. You see, the light illuminates, but it also exposes. Right? It may illuminate the Word, but it also illuminates us. Maybe things that we'd rather left hidden. 
what's done in secret will be made manifest. He's not, he doesn't spell out what he's referring to here, and so many have speculated and many have suggested well, what he's referring to is sin, right? That often the sins that we commit quite often are done in secret, right? When we're all alone and that there's coming a day in which everything you do in secret is going to be exposed. It's going to be come into the light. Your sin will find you out. Uh, and I think a, an interesting illustration of this is what we do in, that we, we sin in secret what took place in 1977 in a sweltering July in New York City when the city was plunged into darkness as the lights went out. Maybe some of you remember this. Uh, there's tens of thousands of people soon emerged from their own homes and began to loot the city. And you had these roving bands who would break into stores and they would steal everything they could carry. In fact, some people, from the reports I read, even took time to go rent trucks in order to go and to steal and haul their loot away. They started over a thousand fires in order to, um, to get the police and the fire department to go to the fires in another part of the city so they could continue to loot in another place. They even stole from each other. I read one lady complain that some men helped her, help, offered to help her carry her stolen goods, but promptly ran off with them. Right? She said, that's not right. They shouldn't have done that to me. So when the lights came on, um, everyone went home and, and only a fraction of people were caught and even less had remorse, any regret. In fact, one young woman said it was really sort of beautiful. Everybody was out on the streets together. It was like being at a party. Well, it was an expensive party. Uh, 2,000 stores were looted and over a billion dollars was lost. And now we have a tendency to think about these things and, and shake our head and think, what's wrong with people? And yet I wonder, if we look in the mirror, what is it we do when we're all alone? What is it we do in secret? I wonder if our commitment to Christ is as strong when we're by ourselves. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So he may be referring to that our sin will be revealed. But I'm, I, I think that will happen, but I'm not exactly sure that's what Jesus means here. Not, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not 100% on verse 17. But you notice the verse, very first word in verse 17? The word for. See that? He's connecting it to the previous verse. So he says in verse 16, don't hide your light. Verse 17, because everything that you do in secret will be exposed. And so there's some type of connection. I think he's telling us what. I think he's warning lamp hiders. If you hide your lamp, all right, it, if you hide your lamp in darkness, you're going to be exposed. I think ultimately what's going to be exposed is that you're, you were never lit in the begin with. I think what's going to be exposed one day is that you're not really a believer. You see, last week we looked at these people who thought they had the Word of God, but it made no difference in their life. There was no fruit. The reason you sow seed is to bear fruit, and they had no fruit. There was nothing that changed. They were as useless as a lamp in a jar. There are people who claim to be Christian, and yet there is no light shining in their life. There is no fruit bearing in their life. And eventually that truth will come out. They never truly responded to the Word of God. I think Jesus is very much warning us. This is a heavy danger. I think that there are those who think they receive the gospel and they keep their life hidden. And it may find out that they were never saved in the begin with. And so Jesus says in verse 18, take care then how you hear. See how important that is. You see, the word not only exposes our secrets, but it divides its hearers. Let's look in verse 18. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. 
right? And so I believe verse 18 is kind of the point of, of the first half of Luke 8. It's a summary. Be careful how you listen to the Word of God. Be aggressive for the Word of God. Hunger for the Word of God. Be vigilant for the Word of God. And then in verse 18, he tells us why. Because, here's the promise, if you are, you'll get more. But if you're not, you, even what you think you have will be taken away. And we saw that in the, in the parable of the soils last week. Remember, who has the word? It's the, the good soil. And what does he get? He gets this fruitfulness in his life. But there are these other soils, right, that think they have the word of God. They think they hear the word of God. But even what they have is taken away. The hard soil thinks it has the word of God, but it's snatched away. The shallow soil, remember, receives the word of God with joy. They think they have it, but they're shallow. They're fair-weathered, aren't they? And they wither and die. It's taken away. The rocky soil think they have the word of God, but they're choked out by the world and it's taken away from them as well. And so what Jesus, I think, is teaching us here is is that we need to be careful how we hear. We need to embrace the word and to begin to obey the word because if we don't, it's going to have the opposite impact upon us. You might think it this way. You either use it or lose it. Right? When the word comes, you either obey it or, or you're going to lose it. It's almost like a foreign language. I don't know how many of you studied foreign language in school and how much of that you still know. I studied the year of Hebrew, and I can maybe give you the Hebrew alphabet right about now. Hey, it's gone. I lost it. I used to know it. Now it's gone. And this is what I think Jesus is warning. If you want to grow, you have to obey what you know. If you want to grow, you have to obey what you know. Receive the word, let it change you, repent, and fruitfulness is added to you. Love, peace, joy, purpose in life, right? Obey what you received and you just keep getting more. Abounding joy, a connection to Christ. But for those who have not, those who have no impact on their life, they think they have it, they have this initial attraction to Jesus. Well, even that initial attraction to Jesus will will one day be taken from them. And I think you know people like this, don't you? Don't you know people that used to be active, in, and I don't know if it's this church, but other churches, and maybe even people that taught Sunday school or even served as elders or, or deacons, and, and now today they, they have no relationship with Christ whatsoever? I mean, I, I, could, I could probably think of a dozen people that I know of. They just, they, and we look at them, and then one time we say, well, of course they have it. They have the Word of God. Look at them. Look how much they're doing. And, and, now, and now they have nothing. We, in fact, on Thursday night in our elders meeting, we consider this as a warning to us that we too need to take care how we hear, lest it be taken from us. Be careful how you hear. Much is at stake when the Bible is proclaimed. So how then can you hear well? I think there's probably, uh, we could probably spend a great deal of time thinking, well, how can we hear the Word of God well? I, I'm, I'm just going to give you some practical suggestions if I can. So verse 18, take care of you, how you hear how to do it. I'm going to give you 10 practical suggestions. They'll be on your screen in a moment. And, and I, I'm somewhat reluctant to do this because I don't want you to think if you, this is what we kind of do as our family, but I don't want you to think if you don't do it this way, then you're doing it wrong or you're not as good a Christian. We don't want to make these laws, but this is how we do it. So these are helpful suggestions. You take some, leave some, take none. But um, this, is, this is how it works out in, in my home, in my life. Um, how, how can you hear the word well? well? Number one, prepare for the word. I would encourage you not to rush into God's presence careless. I would encourage you not to come unprepared as if nothing's going to happen. I would, in fact, encourage you to create an appetite for the Word of God. 
And we do this as a family. We have family worship in our evenings. And, and because of my work schedule and the kids' baseball and dance and all that, we probably have family worship. We don't do it every night. We probably do it three nights a week. Um, and, and we study the Bible and we pray together and we sing together. Um, but we always make sure we do it on Saturday. It's kind of a non-negotiable for us. We're going to worship together as a family Saturday just to prepare us for Sunday so we can spiritually start salivating for what's about to happen on Sunday morning. It's like an appetizer for us. Number two, purify for it. Um, I, I would, you know, Saturday, uh, maybe just because of, of what I do, but Saturday is always a day of repentance for me. It's always a day in which I search my heart. It's always a day uh, I feel more attuned to uh, areas I need to grow. And so I, I would encourage you to purify for it. One way we do this as a family, we turn off the TV on sat- Saturday night. We watch TV. We're not uh, no TV people. But much of TV is just trivial, isn't it? it? I mean, it's silly, and sometimes we like to be silly. But I want to fill my minds with silliness right before I go to bed and get up with these silly ideas as I come to worship. And so this is what we do. We, we sh- generally shut down the TV or we watch a nature show or s- something like that. And number three, rest for the word. I would encourage you not to show up exhausted. I think it's important, at least in my family, not to teach our children that worship is so trivial it doesn't matter if you can't stay awake for it. And so we get good night's sleep. We go to bed early on Saturday night. Preview it. I would encourage you to know the text that we're going to study, right? Uh, and it's listed in your bulletin right there for a reason. And you don't even need it listed. You sh- if I'm preaching through a book, just most of the time, just go to the very next passage. And that's what we're going to be working on, right? And so preview it. Think about it. Come in already aware of it. Number five, don't rush into it, right? Don't rush. I, I, <laughs> we're a family of nine, and uh, we, we get here um, by Sunday school, and it's hard. We have to plan. We get we start our planning starts Saturday night. I, your your family's probably different than my family, but if we feel rushed, we have a tendency not to be kind to each other, right? <laughs> I know you don't understand that, but it's just an issue that we deal with. But we tend to bicker and not be generous and patient with each other, and we don't want to walk into worship. We don't want to pull in five minutes late and think, oh, "I got to get here and I got to do this." We we're just so we're going to plan ahead and try to avoid that. We don't always succeed, but that's what we aim for. Number six, pray for it. I would encourage you to pray for the service, pray during, you should maybe even pray right now, Um, pray after the service. J.C. Ryle said, above all, we must hear with prayer. Here lies the grand defect of the hearing of many. They ask no blessing and they have none. The sermon passes through their minds like a water through a leaky vessel and leaves nothing behind. Number seven, seek it. Don't coast in worship. Consider what is sung. Consider what is prayed. Consider what is preached. Keep your Bible open, right? Focus on the Word. You know, some of you keep notes. I see some of you writing down notes. And I think that's a great way to stay engaged. Now, I don't ever take notes when I listen to preaching, right? So I, I, I don't think you have to do that. But one of the gains you get is not so much that you refer to the notes afterwards, but it helps you maintain an engagement throughout the sermon. In fact, in the 1740s, in the Great Awakening, one of the byproducts of the Great Awakening was a sudden interest in shorthand. And they would go out to hear Whitfield and Edwards preach, and there'd be thousands of them, and they would all have their their ink quills and their portable ink wells, and they're writing down uh, their sermon notes. Uh, Number eight, desire it. I love Proverbs 2. If you cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Number nine, apply it. 
Ask God to speak to you. Be listening every Sunday. What's for you? What is for me? What, I, I need to hear something for me. That you hear it and say, that's mine. That's why I'm here. I need this in my life. Be looking for that to apply to your life. Lastly, discuss it. We talk about it frequently as a family on the way home. Talk about the message. How does it impact our life? How are we going to change? This is the whole point of community groups. It's not to study a new passage of Scripture. It is to ask the question, we heard the, God, uh, the Word of God preached on Sunday. Now what difference does it make in our lives on Tuesday and Thursday? And so let's talk about this and let's discuss it and let's help each other grow towards Christ. I would encourage you to hear the words of our Lord Jesus. Take care then how you hear. Lastly, the Word of God will change your identity. Wonderful little story here in verse 19 when the Bible said, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. Right? And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Just wanted to note that Jesus uh, was a real man. He had a family, he had a mom, he had brothers, he had sisters. Mark 6 tells us he was the son of Mary and the brother of James. Joseph, Judas, and Simon, as well as of his sisters. So Jesus had at least four brothers and then two sisters. And so Mary had at least seven children. Um, and so he, is a, he had this family. And his mother and his brothers were outside and they, they can't reach him because the crowd is too great. You notice, by the way, Joseph's not there. I think it's safe to assume that Joseph has died by this point. We know he's certainly dead by the time Jesus died upon the cross. Otherwise, he would not have trusted the care of Mary to John if she still had a husband. And so there's Jesus' mother and his brothers. And we're not quite sure why they're there, but we know in another event in Mark's gospel, in Mark 3, at one time, his brothers went to seize him, saying he's out of his mind. So they thought Jesus had gone crazy. And you might kind of understand this if your older brother went around saying, I'm the Savior, and I've come to atone for the sin of the world. You might think he's gone a little kooky as well. And so they're going to get him. He needs some help. He's not well. Let's go home, Jesus. We also know in John chapter 7 that his brothers did not believe in him and mocked him. And so they would mock his claims for being the Messiah. If you fast forward, the the wonderful thing is you get to Acts chapter 1 and you read about the disciples. They're devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Right? They came around, didn't they? In fact, they're worshiping him. Mary's praying to her son as her savior. The younger, his younger brothers are worshiping their older brother as the son of God who conquered sin and death. Now, how do you get your younger brothers to worship you? Right? Uh, I, I am not tempted to do, to do that with my brothers. Right? You, you, do, you tell people you're going to die, and then three days later, rise from the dead, and you do it. That's what Jesus has done. And his brothers have come to place their faith in him. But here, we're not there yet. They want to pull him aside. It's time to come home. But you notice he doesn't come home. Instead, he teaches about his new family, according to verse 21. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? And I, th- I think it is. In fact, if it's harsh to us, it would have been scandalous in this day. Because family's everything then. It's all about clan, tribe, family. And the expectation would be he would drop everything and go out to his mother's and at least say, hey, guys, clear some room for my mom so she could come sit down and listen to me. But he did, didn't do that. I, I think Jesus is being purposely shocking. 
I think he wants to communicate that physical descent. The fact that you're an Israelite or, or born to any particular family doesn't mean you're part of God's family. So my children will never stand before God and say, you know, God, I, I should be let in because my dad's a pastor and my mom loves Jesus. That is not going to fly at all. That, that, that means nothing to God. You see, he, Jesus hears his family wants to meet him. and He says, well, why don't you tell my family that family's not just about birth, it's about new birth. Tell them if they think they're my family, they should act like it and help me follow my father. This is shocking. To them, I think it's supposed to be shocking to us. You do realize, I just want to remind you today, you're part of God's family. You understand that, Christian? In fact, the Bible says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. Your identity has been changed. And I understand you're still part of your family, but you're far more, what's far more important is that you're part of God's family, that you are a Christian. Right? Family, and, and I want to understand... You would understand the family's huge to us. And you understand that. We are very family-oriented. And, and we talk to our older, our older kids, my, my oldest son. We tell him, listen, your younger brothers are going to look up to you. They're going to want to become like you. Family's really important to us. In fact, all my boys wear cowboy boots. I have no idea why. I, I don't wear cowboy boots. But, but the oldest son, he wears cowboy boots. And then what happens? Well, the middle son wants cowboy boots and the youngest son wants cowboy boots. They, they, for good or for worse, they want to be just like their older brother. Well, I have an older brother too. And when I grow up, I want to be just like him. And his name is Jesus. I want to be just like him. He's my brother, the son of God, second person of the Trinity, the creator of all things. I'm in his family, and so are you, Christian. In fact, that makes us something, doesn't it? It makes us brothers and sisters if we have the same father. So we should act like it. And I don't mean all the squabbling and the bickering. Serving each other. Loving each other. Helping each other. I've talked about this at new members class this morning that... That, listen, you, you should come to this church not as a store, not as a business, not thinking, serve me. What am I going to get? Where's my greeting? Where, where's this? You come, as a, you come and gather as a family. And you come to a family. You say, how can I serve? How can I help? Where's my chore? What, what's my part here? And this is what it's supposed to be, a, a family that we're involved. If you're not plugged in, if you're not forming relationships, it will never feel like a family to you. And Christians have this family. In fact, we have two families. And yet the commitment to God, our Father, far supersedes the commitment to our physical family. And Jesus will teach us over and over again, even though he will emphasize the importance of his family, care for his mother at the cross, rebuke the Pharisees for not caring for their parents. But when there's a conflict between God, our Father, and our, and our physical family, God needs to win every time. We need to say to them, I'm sorry, I love you, but I need to obey my Father in heaven. I'm, I'm his son. I'm his daughter now. Of course, not everybody is. You, you should understand that. Not everybody is a child of God. In fact, you notice what Jesus says. He, he tells us here. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. I, I wonder if he looked around and looked in people's eyes as he said this, as he was certainly teaching them and us that not everyone who's sitting in this room when Jesus was teaching are part of my family. And this is not popular in our day. I understand that. I, it was a, five years ago that the governor of Alabama went to a church service, and he said, not everyone here is my brother or sister. Not everyone here is a child of God unless you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then he preached the gospel and gave an invitation. And the media went ballistic. How dare you say we're not all children of God? Well, if they're angry at the governor of Alabama, they ought to be angry at Jesus because that's exactly what he's saying. 
Not everyone is. Who is? Those who hear the word and what? Do it. Do it. Those are those who, in his family, that that have come to him and want to follow him. Are you doing it? I know you're hearing it. You're here. Are you obeying? Certainly there's some area in your life that you need to grow in obedience, isn't there? Some place that you need to seek after him. Those who hear the word and do it are part of his family. Now, it's important for us to say as we come to a close that that's not how we get into the family. So please don't, if you're not a Christian uh, and we're thankful that you're here, please do not hear, okay, in order to get into God's family, I need to hear the word and obey the word. No, that would be the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching. This is not how you get yourself in the family. This is how you show yourself you are already in the family. This is the family resemblance that you show. The way you get in the family is by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by obedience to Jesus Christ, but by trusting in Jesus Christ. In fact, one has said in commenting on the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is the true elder brother. He willingly brings us into the father's family at his own expense. He died for us. We sit at the father's table dressed in Jesus' clothes and with his ring on our finger. Do you live, he asks, every day as if you are a member of God's family, accepted and loved? Remember, a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved, loved and accepted, but because he is already loved and accepted. That's why we obey, because we've been accepted. Because Christ has come and Christ has died and Christ has risen. And it's by trusting in Christ and his righteousness and his work that we are accepted into God's family. And that ought to change us. Right? Shouldn't that impact us? Shouldn't that profoundly uh, uh, change the way we live? There's a Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, who told a story of a man and his boy walking down through the woods along a path, hand in hand. And the child, just feeling great and secure that he is the son of this father. And and this father loves him. And it's this beautiful picture. And all of a sudden, the father swoops down and lifts his child into his arms and holds him tight. And he kisses him. And he says, son, your father loves you. And then he puts him down. And they walk on. Now I wonder, is there a difference in that boy's heart before and after that event? I think there is. There's a drawing to his father, isn't there? My father loves me. It's just that that affirmation wants him to, to live in a way that pleases him. This is who God is. He's a father to us. I think that's so incredibly important in this day in which rejection is so commonplace. And husbands reject wives, and wives reject husbands, and parents reject children, and children reject parents, and high school students reject each other. Everybody's rejecting each other. And, and maybe you've been rejected by your family. Maybe, maybe you've been cast aside by your family. I want you to hear what Jesus is saying to you this morning. is that you can be in His family, and He will love you without condition. He will never reject you. He will never walk away. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. You can have that today. You can be taken into God's family today. Jesus is saying, I have a a love that will blow past your hurt. And you will feel forever secure. I'll never move on. I'll never find favor in another and leave you on the wayside. He loves you. You're his child, Christian. You're in his family. Show it. Obey him. Please him. And for those who are not in his family, 
to those who long to be loved and accepted, who long for that embrace of a father, that family with a brother. I invite you, even this very moment, to bow your knee to King Jesus and place your faith in him, that you might be adopted into his home. The Bible says if you confess your mouth with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved simply by confession, a faith that submits to him. And you will come into that family, and I trust your life will never be the same. This confronted the great Charles John Wesley in 1736. When he came uh, as a young Anglican missionary and settled in Savannah, Georgia, the day after he arrived in this new land, he was introduced to a Moravian pastor who questioned this missionary about his faith. The Moravian says, Do the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Now, Wesley was totally taken back by this. And he, in fact, he didn't, didn't answer. He didn't know how to answer. And so the Moravian continues saying, do you know Christ? I know he is the Savior of the world, Wesley replied after a pause. True. But do you know he has saved you? Wesley answered, I hope he has died to save me. The Moravian persisted, do you know yourself? And Wesley said, I do. But he would write in his journal that day, I fear they were vain words. I wonder, do you know that Christ is your Savior? Does the Spirit testify to your spirit that you are a child of God? That you've been brought into his family? Friends, you can know today if you will simply call out to him, confess your sin and be saved. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this time this morning to consider your word. We're thankful for the word. We're thankful for the work that it does, even if it's harsh work and hard work in our hearts. We're thankful for it. It is a word, the word that blesses us and reveals you to us that we might be drawn closer to you. And so we ask that you would help us even now to be good hearers of your word, that we would be, as Christ has told us, to be careful how we hear. Help us to seek after it. I pray for my friend here that does not know you, that is not part of your family. I don't know what would keep them from coming to you even now. Will you not place faith in their heart? Will you not allow them this very moment to call out to you saying, I am a sinner. I have, I have rebelled against you. I have gone my own way. And I believe that you are God alone and that you have sent your son to die in my place and he was raised on the third day and I submit my life to you now forevermore. Save me. Will you not put that prayer in their heart that they may know Christ as we know Christ, our God and Savior. Help us to live for your glory, our Lord, for it's in your name we pray. Amen.